Well, that's the, the land where our Lord walked and lived when He was on the earth. And it has a, a special place in all of our hearts, I think, because of that. Um, Norman asked us to, to talk a little bit about that today. We're going to do that. We're going to show you some pictures. Mostly we're going to share with you what we sensed and felt of the Lord and, and His work there. And I want to tell you that the Israeli people uh, who, are, who are Jews as well as non-Jews uh, are a very loving people. They're very humble and they're very respectful. But for the most part, they live in, in great fear and bondage. Uh, our God said it this way. There's 7 million Jews living in Israel. They're surrounded by 200 million Muslims who hate them and want to kill them. And that's how they live every day of their life. You know, I, I don't live that way. I'm, I'm grateful. But it, it just puts a, a pressure on you about life that I don't think we in this country really appreciate or understand. And so while I saw a great deal of uh, bondage there, uh, I understand uh, where, where, where they live and the, and the environment they live in is, is very trying. And it's a, it's a part of the world that we really do need to pray for a lot. The Bible tells us to pray for Israel. Uh, there, there's no nation on earth that's a greater target for the rest of the world than Israel. Since we've been back, they've had bombing and shelling and some people have been killed. Uh, we, we left there before that happened, but not much before that. Uh, it, it, and it's a way of life for them. They live with that, that possibility and that threat all the time. We've got a few uh, pictures we're going to show you if you want to put that first one up. No, that's not the first one. <laughs> Where are you? Uh, it's, it's our guide uh, in, a, in a little... Uh, no, no, it's back quite a ways. Okay, well, no... Okay, we'll we'll just start right there. That's our that's our group, and that that gold dome behind us is the Dome of the Rock, which, if you've read anything about Israel, that's what you've heard about. That site is the holy site that the Jews believe the, the temple has to be rebuilt upon, and currently that exact site, which is Mount Moriah, is occupied by the Dome of the Rock, which is owned and controlled by the Muslims. So, they've got a problem. They can't rebuild where they want to. But nevertheless, that's the environment they live in. We got to come up there. That's our group you're seeing there. And uh, we enjoyed going in that area that's called the Temple area. We did not get to go in the Dome of the Rock. Uh, I was there probably 40 years ago, and I did get to go into it. Got to see the uh, sacrificial rock upon which literally thousands of animals have been sacrificed. But this is, this is the holy place that the Jews anticipate rebuilding. Okay, go on, Rod, to the menorah that you had up there to start with. Oh, okay. Well, that's the, uh, I don't know if you can read that, that's, that's the menorah, the golden candlestick that's supposed to go into the temple. We listened to a young lady, a Jewish young lady, tell us about their plans for rebuilding the temple. They are uh, well into this. They have all the material, have all the priest clothes, they have all the, the furniture and the paraphernalia that's needed. And I thought this picture best describes what they're doing. This is the golden candlestick. It literally is made out of gold. And I don't know... Now, you can see some of the people standing back behind there. Uh, that gives you an idea of how big it is. 
It's pure gold. It's a lot of gold. <laughs> it's worth a whole lot of money. And I think what we heard about the rebuilding intent uh, best describes what, what most of the Orthodox Jews who do not believe in the Messiah, who do not believe Jesus was the Christ, uh, and they're still waiting for him, uh, that, that's their hope. They have their hope in, in what they can do, what they can prepare for God to rebuild, and in hopes that one day he will be pleased with, with their efforts. And, and she even used the words, God needs us. God's waiting on us. You know, I wanted to talk to her, but I didn't get to do that. Uh, because she's obviously expressing a lot of frustration and a lot of bondage. But that's what they believe. That's what they live for, and they are totally caught up in that to the point that their whole lives are lived still in an effort to keep the law. As the prophecy that came to us this morning, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. But if you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you have no grace and truth. You still have law. And, and church, I want to say to us, as Paul said to every church he wrote a letter to, especially the Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should believe a lie, that you should go back to law when you have seen and tasted of the grace of God? I'm going to run on through some of these and then Pam's going to come. Go on to the next one. Uh, this is the amphitheater at Caesarea which is quite a remarkable accomplishment for when it was built. It was built prior to Jesus' birth uh, by Herod the Great. Uh, they just uncovered it in the last 30 years, and they still now they use it for uh, concerts and various entertainment. It, it's, uh, this is the stage, and it's scaffolding with the lighting and some of the seating. But for the, the day in which it was built, which was, would all have been by hand labor, it's quite remarkable. Okay? Well, these are, these are kind of out of order. Uh, but we did go to the, uh, the place that's believed where Jesus was buried, the, the uh, garden tomb, they call it. And this is a diagram of that tomb. Go ahead. Let's see. I don't know if it... Yeah, there it is. That's the... Uh, entrance to the tomb, as as it is believed. Okay. Well, I apologize. We're we're out of order here. I guess it rearranged them. Um, there there's some more pictures there of the tomb and and of actually going into it. Uh, no, that's not it. Go ahead and keep going. <laughs> Well, no, that's not the tomb. Uh, but, but this is an interesting picture. Let me just tell you about it. You see the steps down. The, down in that is a, a place where the Jews were taught under the law to go in for cleansing. They had to go down into this cave and basically take a bath. And the thing I want you to notice is the little, little ridge in the middle of the steps. That's, that is a separating piece of stone. If you went down on the right side, you came back up on the left side, and you did not dare touch anyone or anything that was on the right side. And if you did, you had to go back because that defiled you. And that's just an extreme case of, yeah, that'll preach. A little legalism there. Go ahead, Rod. Rod. Okay, that this is Roman, our guide. We're in that amphitheater again, and uh, this fellow was quite remarkable. We were greatly blessed by him. He is a Christian Jew, and he he knew the stories of the Bible very well and knew the history 
of the Bible and, and helped us understand a great deal of, of what we, we read in the Bible. Uh, it's, it's quite a feeling to be on Mount Carmel or in Caesarea or uh, at the tomb or wherever it might be, and, and you read it in the Bible, and you're right there. It's right there. You're at the place. Pam said she reads through the Bible now and doesn't just skip over the names of the places because it makes a difference when you know where you are. Go ahead, Rod. This is a good picture of Jerusalem. It's actually taken from a spot where John the Baptist was supposed to have lived. And uh, it's a beautiful city, but as you'll see there, there's a lot of trees, but it's mostly stone and rock. Um, the natural setting of Israel as a whole is a desert, and, and that's what you see most everywhere. Go ahead. Oh, this is what, this is a boat on the Sea of Galilee. This, the name of this boat is the Jesus Boat. We got on this boat and rode it. It's owned and operated by a Christian Jew, and uh, he's very bold in what he has to say to his captive audience when he takes them out on the Sea of Galilee. He makes, he cuts no slack for uh, unbelievers, he He's pretty straightforward in what he had to say, and we were greatly blessed. I think there's another picture in there of the Sea of Galilee that's better than this one. Yeah, there it is. Uh, that's a good picture of the Sea of Galilee with some of the mountains around it. Happened to be calm that day. As you know from the Bible stories, it wasn't calm all the time. Uh, there were great storms that came up. All of the water that's utilized in, in Israel, the whole country, comes out of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, irrigation is done out of there. The, all their drinking water and their domestic use for water comes from this. So it's a tremendous uh, place and asset for them, and they rely heavily upon it. They do have a great deal of irrigation and grow a lot of crops, but it's a desert, and so it's quite remarkable that they grow all that they do in, in such a, an arid place. Go ahead. Well, if you don't know what that is, it doesn't impress you. But when I tell you that that is a, an olive tree in the Garden of Gethsemane, likely was there when Jesus was. Uh, nobody can prove that or know that for sure, but it is. Now, back behind us is a big church, so it's kind of commercialized, but we tried to get a picture that uh, we hope was the way it might have been in his day. Uh, they grow more olive trees probably than anywhere in the world. If you eat olives, that's probably where they come from is Israel. And they grow olives everywhere. They have olive groves uh, just throughout the country, and they're very pretty. But this is a very, very old olive tree, and uh, it's pretty impressive. Okay. This is the place of the skull. I don't know if you can tell it, but a, a good view of that, uh, it really does look like a skull. There's a couple of openings that would, would be thought of as the sockets for the eyes and the nose. And uh, you've got to kind of have an imagination to see that from that picture, but in reality it looked more like it. And then just around the corner from this is where the tomb was that, that we went to. Okay, go ahead. Well, we're skipping around here. Um, this is probably one of the only places we saw that, that it is believed Jesus actually walked on those very stones. This is the road that runs from where Jesus was arrested uh, to Caiaphas' house, the high priest. Uh, this road, is you can tell that it goes up, and, and he was uh, taken up this road. And they believe it's, it's not a road that's been uh, covered over and, and it's beneath you like most places were. Nor does it have a church built on top of it as most places did. But they believe this is actually the road that he walked on. It's, it's pretty interesting to step out on that road and, and feel like 
His, his feet actually came right across where I'm standing. Okay. You've heard of the Wailing Wall? The Wailing Wall is the western wall of the temple, which is still in place. This is the wall that was the western wall of the temple. And it is the place where now the Jews go to to pray. They cannot go any further because to go into the temple area under its current regime would be defiling them. So this is the uh, men's side. It's divided into two parts, the men's and the women's. And they go up to this wall and pray. And I don't know if you can see it, but in the cracks of that wall, they're literally filled with little pieces of paper where people write their prayers and stick them in that wall, believing that uh, God will hear those prayers. And those prayers are not just thrown away. They're collected about every three days and, and stored away somewhere. Uh, we were told where, but it really doesn't matter. Uh, I think the next picture maybe is the women's side. You have that? Yeah, that's the women's side of the same wailing wall. And we went down there, and, and we prayed right along with the rest of them. But we went on past the wall, too. We went in uh, to what, what's called the holy place. Okay, next. This is uh, in the garden tomb area. This is a wine press. I don't know if you can see it, but they fill that vat up with grapes and get barefooted and start tromping. And that's how they make their wine. Next. Yeah. Gethsemane means wine press. Okay. I don't know if you can see this. This is the family of one of the pastors that, that we ministered in their church. Max and Tanya are their names and their kids. Uh, delightful couple. They're, they're Jews. Uh, they came to Israel from the Ukraine, and they speak Russian. So the Russian is their language in their church. So we had interpreters that interpreted for us into Russian. They're very... Fun people to be with, and God's using them mightily. Okay, next. And this is another couple, Sergey and Natasha. This, he's another pastor that we met with, and uh, obviously this is an informal setting, and uh, we had a great visit with them. They're a young couple that God's using, and they also came from the Ukraine. Okay. There's our group. There's 12 of us. You can see there's only three men, nine women, kind of a mismatch there, but we had a great time and uh, got close to those people, and God, God used each and every one of them in different ways, all right? Well, here's the door that, that goes out of the tomb, and Pam's on her way out, along with what the sign says, he was on his way out too. He's not here, for he is risen. That's what's on the door of the tomb, which is controlled by Christians today. So it's pretty encouraging, having been in that hole in the rock, and then to come out. That's what he did. Okay, next. Thought you might like to see the Mediterranean beach at Tel Aviv. That, that's it. Uh, we, we stayed in a hotel that was within walking distance of this and got to go down to the beach a time or two. It's a beautiful place. The Mediterranean is very beautiful. I recommend you get you a cruise and go on the Mediterranean. Next. Well, somehow these pictures got squeezed down, but we, that's us in front of the Dome of the Rock. Next. That's it? Okay. Well, I'm going to ask Pam to come on up, and she has a few things to share with you. We're going to at least, at least need this light on up here. There you go. Turn your mic on. Did I turn it on? Can you hear me? Does it sound like it's on? 
that better? <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> there were a few places, about really special places for me, and one of them was when I got baptized in the Jordan River. That was just something I thought I'm not going to go over there and not get baptized for Jesus got baptized. Um, so that was special. Uh, just as Steve said, there's several places. Lots of times they'll say, well, this is where we think this happened. Or this is the area that he was, was in. But when they would say to me, this is the rocks he walked on. Or this is the tree he sat under. Those were the special times for me. You know, it was, oh my goodness, this is where Jesus sat when he prayed. And sweat, great drops of blood, was right there under those trees. And then the, that, that rock path between the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas betrayed him and the soldiers walked him up. up. We showed you the picture. They walked him up to Caiaphas' house and then they put him in a well. It looked like an old empty well and that's what they called their jail. And they just dropped him in there and that is the exact place they kept him. Uh, historically and traditionally they have proven that that is where they kept him until he went to trial. That was special to me. And then the garden tomb was really special. And then the Sea of Galilee. Oh my goodness, when we took the boat tour it was like I could just close my eyes and see him walking on the water. You know, it was so, so real. You know, what I learned, uh, I guess what I came back with spiritually is about, I had three different times that I was just overwhelmed with the legalistic views of the traditional Jews over there. Um, as we got in the airplane uh, to just fly over, we had a ten and a half hour flight through the middle of the night to go from Newark, New Jersey to Tel Aviv. Um, there were, we got on there with a lot of Orthodox Jews with their black coats and their big top hats and their they they let this side of their beard grow indefinitely so they have long curls coming down the side the men do and uh, we were all trying to sleep through the night and about the middle of the, in the middle of the night five o'clock in the morning is like a, the set time every corner was filled with these Jews doing their their bows and their prayers and their their ritual things, and uh, I'd never seen that before, but it was kind of shocking to me to see what kind of laws that they try to fulfill. And another thing that hit me in the way of law was the wailing wall. I saw people with their face plastered against the wall and their hands flat against it with tears running down their face as they poked their prayers into the little crevices. Wailing, truly it was a wailing wall. That was another time that I thought, oh, my goodness, they're sincerely seeking God. They are um, doing all they know to do to get to God, you know. And I'm sorry to say, unless they come to know Jesus, they will live their whole life trying to find God. And uh, it, it burdened my heart. And then the third time that I really came face-to-face -face was at a church around where John the Baptist was living. And I, for some reason, I, I was by myself. But there was a whole group of people with, and I think they were some other Orthodox. I don't think they were the Jewish Orthodox. But they were, you could tell they were a group of people. They were dressed differently. And uh, I think they were believers in Christ, or they wouldn't have been looking at John the Baptist's place. But there was some kind of... Um, plaque or something on the ground up under a little cubby hole and we were in line to see that and I was in the back of the line and every single one of these orthodox people got on their hands and knees and got into this cubby hole and kissed this plaque they kissed the plaque they kissed the plaque kissed, everyone kissed the plaque and I just left with such a burden because they that's the traditions that they're trying to live and they were, they're trying their best to find God and they're sincere, they love him, but they are working really hard at it. And you know, I, was, I woke when uh, it was kind of on my mind, and one morning early, I was in bed, still had my eyes closed, and the Lord spoke to me, and he said, they don't understand the veil. 
So I began to think about the veil. And so that's I'm going to share a few scriptures on the veil. Because the people that work so hard, like the ones I just described to you, they don't understand that the veil of the temple was torn in two when Jesus died. And that you can go from, you can go in now, you know, you can have communion with the Father. Um, you know, when Jesus died, that, that veil was rent across the grain, miraculously, supernaturally, instantaneously, the veil was torn in two. And you can go from the outer court into the inner court. There's no more veil. And it's, I felt like that's what the Lord was showing me, was these people that were working so hard, they still have the feeling that if they do enough things and they do it right, that maybe they can get to God. But they don't understand that through Jesus and his blood, you don't have to do. Jesus did it for us. He fulfilled the law. He did all the things that we they're looking for so that we can automatically, through his blood, go into the Holy of Holies and have fellowship and communion with God. Uh, <clears throat> I um, want to read this scripture. It says, this, hope, this is in Hebrews six nineteen and 20. It says, this hope we, has, we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters the veil. We can enter the veil. There is no more veil. But you know those people I just described to you, I think they still think there's a veil. They still have to do and live and be traditionally religious, doing all their prayers in the corner, you know. Um, But it says our hope goes within the veil. And then verse 20 says, Where Jesus has entered in as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever. You know, I love that word forerunner because that tells me we come after him. He's the first of many. He did it first. He broke through the veil so that we can walk in after him. And because we are in him, we've been born again. Uh, We have a seed that has been planted because we believe in Christ Jesus. He lives in us. We are in him. As he walks through that veil and he's our intercessor and high priest, we are with him. And that's why we don't have to go through those religious... And, you know, I was thinking, they had all their little rules to follow, but do we still follow a few little rules to think that we can approach God? Do we think we've got to... uh, Pray enough or do this or do that or keep, keep this and that. And I don't know, the Lord spoke to me as I was coming over here saying, you might have a few little things that subtly approach you at times that keep you from going straight in, you know. And our access into the veil is not because of anything we've done. It's because of what he did and his blood. And so we've got to just accept that and we can freely walk in to the Holy of Holies. We can be, you know, we can be a friend. That I thought of this whenever that Friend of God song came up. We can be a friend of God. We, God can be our friend. And I was thinking about how he spoke to me. I was laying on my bed with my eyes closed and Holy Spirit said, they don't understand the veil. I didn't work for that communion with the Father. He just is my friend. You know, we can be in the veil. We can walk through the veil because of the blood was shed. Jesus did what we could never do. There's another verse that I want to read in another version, and then I'll be through. Um, It says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place. You know, back in the Old Testament, only the priest could walk in. He could, only he could have the presence of God upon him. But it says, now we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the veil into the most holy place. And since we have this great priest, which is Jesus, and he lives in us, we can go right into his presence with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. We can be a friend of God because of what he's done. You know, the, we don't have that veil. And I saw so many people just that I rubbed shoulders with in Israel that 
didn't understand that the veil has been torn down. <clears throat> do, you, do you want this? And that's because that's not how we feel. Uh, we we have great sympathy for them. Uh, really, we feel the same with with them as we do people right here, because I think the problems are the same. The the prophecy we had this morning was right on target. We live in a world, and so do the Jews, of law. And law has its place. And law is a place that, uh, an item that God initiated. But it can never be the way of hope. It can never be the way of entering in. Because its, its requirements are a little too hard. In fact, there's only been one man ever walked the face of the earth that could do it. But I'm going to bet you everybody that can hear my voice right this minute has tried. In fact, I'm going to bet that most of you have tried recently. You know how I know that? Because I'm pretty sure you're just like me. And I know I have. I want to read a verse in Mark chapter 7, starting with verse 5. I think this depicts what we saw in many ways. It's not just the Jews. Everybody living in Israel is very much caught up in the culture of the Israelis. Verse 5, Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? He answered and said to them, well has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things you do. And he said to them full well, You reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your own tradition. I think that says, in a nutshell, what, what we saw, what we're talking about here today. All men, Jew or Gentile, Muslim, doesn't matter, all men seek to live by the tradition of law instead of by the commandment of God. And if that were not true, then every man today would be a believer in Jesus Christ because the commandment of God is that He has sent His only begotten Son. He's given that command, and we are to believe it. But many do not believe it. Many still seek to gain righteousness by law. And law is simply a way that, that men can, can pursue whatever it is in life they want only to find they never reach it. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that when you live by law, you have great aspirations, you have high and mighty goals that you never reach? You don't ever get there. You, know, you all know people that are older than you who have tried all their life. Why don't we learn? Why don't we learn from those who have gone before us? They tried. They tried really hard. And they never made it. That's the question I ask every time I see that. It's a culture that Paul dealt with throughout his ministry. 
You cannot read any of Paul's writings in the Bible that he did not address this problem. Every single letter he wrote, he addressed this problem. The Galatian letter is probably the most vivid. But from the very beginning, uh, in verse chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. These are believers. Just like us. You know, it's one thing to, to see the bondage of the Orthodox Jews. At least I understand it. Because they don't believe in Christ. They don't believe in the one who sets us free from bondage. But we believe. We have no excuse. Paul described himself in, in chapter 1 of, in verse 14 of that of that same book when he said, And I profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. That's, that's how Paul described himself. What about Peter? In chapter 2, verse 11, Paul had to rebuke him. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that, that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel... I said unto Peter before them all, If you being a Jew live before, after the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as the Jews? See, Peter slipped back into it too. This is one of the disciples. He fell back into bondage or he was getting close. I bet he's glad Paul challenged him even though it probably embarrassed him. You know, probably right there he made some excuse like I would do. A taxi driver we had best depicted what I saw there when he expressed a life of no hope. He was not a believer. He had no hope. His culture was one of bondage. I thought of Romans 6.14. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. If you're under law then sin has dominion over you. But the Bible says to us, sin will not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Jesus did not come to teach us how to keep the law. See, the Mosaic law was in place long before Jesus came. And it would have made sense after God saw his people for years and years and years and years and years fail to keep his commandments, it would have made sense if somebody would come along with the answer. Somebody would have come as Jesus came, the anointed of God, and said, okay, boys, line up. Y'all hadn't been able to do it, but I'm fixing to show you. That's not what he said, is it? It is what he did. He did keep it. He, he came and said, I didn't come to do away with the law or to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And he did. He's the only one that ever did. But he did not say, okay, here's how you do it. That is not why he came. He did not come to show us how to keep the law. In fact, he showed us that we could not keep the law, but he did keep it. Instead, he offered to us his proxy. Jesus offered us his proxy. You know what a proxy is? It means that I am authorized as a substitute for somebody else. So when Jesus offers me his proxy, he is saying, Here, I will be your substitute. I will take your place. I will take what you deserve. 
which, by the way, was death. He took that for us. Now, y'all have heard that before from this pulpit. It's just another word that Dorman would say, what he really means is exchange. And that is what I mean. He offered an exchange. He offered us hope that could never be found under law. Law served a very good purpose. The letter to the Galatians tells us that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But it goes on to say once it has brought you to Christ, it's done. It doesn't have anything left to do. Once it brings you to Christ, it's done. You no longer need law. Now, does that make you lawless? No. It means that you've had one law replaced with another. For we have been set free from the law of sin and death by another law, the law of the Spirit of life. Isn't that what Romans 8 tells us? See, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And that's the law that we are set free from. And that's the reason that we have hope. Because under the old law, and even as we Christians who try to live under law, have you ever asked yourself this question? Why do I try to live under law? Why do I try to do good things throughout my life? And I think the answer is pretty straightforward. It's because I want to have worth, but it, I don't just want worth. I want that worth to be inherent. I want it to be of myself. I want to have inherent worth. Now, now y'all don't look at me like I'm the only one that feels that way, because I don't think I am. We're motivated to have inherent worth. And while God wants us to have worth, we will never find inherent worth. Because the only thing this old self is worthy of is death. It will never have inherent worth. But we can have hope. We can have worth, but it's, it has to be imputed worth. It has to be worth that is given from another to me. That's not inherent worth, that's imputed worth. It has to come from somebody else. I have to give up on my pursuit of self-righteousness. I'm never going to get there. I'm never going to make it. It's impossible because I can't keep law. I have to abandon my need to be needed. Anybody motivated by that? Oh, I just want to make a difference. How many times have I said that? How many people have you heard say that? I just want to make a difference. You know where that comes from? Self. That's me saying I want to be somebody. Now, I can serve. But why do I serve? What's the motive of my heart when I do a good deed? Am I trying to gain self-righteousness? Or am I working the works of God because I already am righteous? Because I have His righteousness. There's a big difference. Big difference. Sometimes we can paint it up to look the same on the outside but it's not. And God knows. What's the motive of my heart? Am I offering something of myself? Or am I offering something that God has worked in me? Am I still seeking self-worth? Or am I content with a worth that He imputes to me? I want to read you out of a book I've been reading that I think says what I'm, what I'm talking about very well. 
In other words, a sacrifice is acceptable to God only as long as it is on the altar. When it is presented unto God, it finds its meaning. Withdrawn from the altar of God and reclaimed in arrogant, presumptuous self-ownership, your body loses its meaning and therefore its value. Hence, in being yielded as a sacrifice under the ownership and lordship of Jesus Christ, I find meaning and explanation. When I take my body and my life in my own hands, I make myself meaningless and valueless. My life becomes an unending search for ways to convince myself and the world of my significance. So which side of self am I living on? What do I not understand when Jesus says, let a man deny himself? Who is that? Who is himself? That's the old me. That's the me that was crucified with Christ. That's the me that seeks for inherent worth. But if I will abandon him and take up the new man that I am in Christ, make the exchange for that new man and seek to live the righteousness that is of God in me, then then things become totally different. And I no longer live by law. And I actually get something done. When I quit living by law and live by the Spirit, then through the Spirit, I get some things done. I don't have the frustration of living by all of my good efforts and all that I can accomplish. In fact, that word accomplish is kind of a significant word. In Christ... He does all the accomplishing. Under law, I do it. So, that's a good way to measure which one am I in. We saw a lot of that in Israel. We see a lot of it in America. We see a lot of it in the church. The church at large. I'm not talking specifically to you. We as the people of God the people who have tasted of the goodness of God and have, have been redeemed from the old seed by which we lived in bondage. We've got to remember. Paul said it this way, You who want to live under law, do you not hear the law? Do you not hear what it says? Just stop and listen to what it is you're trying to live up to. And then say, woe is me. I cannot do it. I never will do it. There must be a better way, and there is. That way is to take His way, to take what He has done. Don't try to rewalk the road He walked. You can't do it. But walk life that is set before you by the Spirit of God and do it in His power and His Spirit. And then you will be successful. So that's what we learned. That's what we saw. That's what we saw pretty vividly uh, among many, many different cultures living in the same country. And, and quite uh, to my dismay, I see the same thing here. And I think, I think one of the biggest challenges the church in the, in, the, in the world has before it is to not go back under law. Because it's trying real hard to do that. And we can't do it. We, if we do... We will die. We have nothing to offer the world 
if that's the way we're going to go. That's why the Jews were scattered and had nothing to offer. Because they had nothing that the rest of the world didn't have. But we do. We have Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Provider, the Redeemer, the one who empowers us to be far more than we can ever be of ourselves because He freely gives us of Himself. Father, I thank You for the privilege of traveling to Israel and to being blessed to see where you walked. And we are touched, Lord, by understanding of your, your ways. And we are saddened as we look at people around the world who are in such bondage. And it is our prayer for the Jews, for the church, for the believers around the world, to see through the veil that has blinded us into the Holy of Holies and realize that your Son, Jesus Christ, has literally made a way for us to go in and partake of your goodness. And it is our choice today, Lord, to do that. And as I pray, I declare upon each of us that hear this word, that they each enter in to the veil and bask in your glory and lay their labors at your feet and enter into the rest that is given us of you. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.